for half a century, WJPZ Syracuse has been the greatest media classroom on the planet. We've trained students from the 1970s to the 2020s on how to run a professional radio station. But the lessons learned and relationships formed go far beyond studios and transmitters. Taking a look back through the eyes of those who experienced it. This is WJPZ at 50. Here's the power of the WJPZ Alumni Association. A year and a half ago, I am in Nashville, Tennessee at the Podcast Movement Convention. I get a text from Marty D. He says, hey, uh, Chris Godsick from the class of 87 is at this convention. He lives in Nashville now. You should go find him and meet him. Sure, great. And uh, go, I find Chris. We sit down. We have uh, lunch or coffee or something together. And we've been in contact ever since. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thank you very much. Do you regret that meeting? (laughs) Not at all. So, (laughs) okay. Usually it doesn't take people that long to firmly regret meeting me. But okay, thank you. Tell me about your journey, how you got to Syracuse and the station and what you did there for starters. I grew up in New York City and my first internship that I had when I was a senior was at WVN Joy by Day, WVN Jazz by Night. (laughs) And I went out there every Friday. I knew the guy that owned the station and he said, you can be a production intern. I want you to put a tie and jacket on every Friday, which I did and drove out to Livingston, New Jersey. I had no classes on Friday and I learned to uh, be a production assistant from the ground up. And I think uh, of all the very, very frustrated people who taught me from the very beginning. And that was great. And then WVNJ got sold to Malwright Communication and uh, became Z100. Oh. And then I started working for WHTZ as a promotion intern, and I drove the van to Jones Beach, which was very interesting. And (laughs) uh, uh, those are stories for another day. And I also worked, uh, you know, in the studio doing the request line and putting the carts together and the commercials together for the jocks, kind of really learned a little bit about radio and was very excited about radio and went to Syracuse because they had a dual program in uh, radio, television, film production and marketing. Mm -hmm. The radio and television film production was great. I had absolutely no business being in the business school (laughs) (laughs) with the exception of the marketing courses, but all this other other stuff, uh, I'm just shocked they let me in. But it is where I discovered Z89. And it was this really cool station that had a reach of about four people. Right. Uh, my first uh, shift was uh, 1 to 4 a.m., mm-hmm. which I uh, dedicated to. And we were on in all of the dorms. So, you know, the RA security guys in the dorms were the only ones that could hear it. (laughs) And fortunately, Z89 had one groupie. One. Yes, God bless Felicia. (laughs) One groupie, one dedicated groupie who heard it on a cable station in the Syracuse market. And Felicia would call everybody every day, God bless her. (laughs) So so I started at one, you know, doing one to 4 a.m. The beautiful Julie Bruno was uh, doing four to seven. And you know, I thought I was a rock star. No one ever heard it except for the RAs. I go, did you listen to the last three hours? And they're like, no. I'm like, well, you should have. You would have heard Felicia. <laughs> you really missed something. And that's kind of, you know, how it started. And it was nothing. A seed, a seed was growing, but it was really, um, it was just an exciting place. Everybody, even though no one heard it, 
even though the equipment was left a lot to be desired, it was exciting. People were excited to be on the air and we were working kind of toward one goal, which was uh, going FM at that point. So you were there from 83 to 87. So the switch to FM would have been right in the middle of your time there, right? Yes. Uh, sophomore year. Take me behind the scenes there. Yeah. It was amazing. I mean, I was just kind of a young guy and uh, I'm, I'm watching these guys take this station that was not even listened to by the RAs uh, to FM. That was extraordinary. I mean, that was just a, such a massive leap. And I uh, was fortunate to get four to seven p.m. on Friday Drive. So I couldn't have had a more exciting time. We got new equipment and people were listening and it was a story and everybody wanted to get on the air. And there was a you know long process to uh, work yourself up. And it was wonderful. It was magical uh, because it really felt professional. Yeah. You can't screw up. You have got to show up with your A game. There are actually people listening now. <laughs> <laughs> That's the big difference, right? Now, like, you, we pretend there are people listening besides Felicia, yeah. but now there's a lot yeah. more than just Felicia listening. No, people actually are paying attention. And there was a tremendous amount of pressure. You really learn to, you know, hone your skills. But there was a little bit of, of leeway to be creative, especially during the four to seven. We had the ability to put calls through. We would ask questions. We would want people to check in. And people were calling. It was very participatory. And it wasn't like, you know, when, again, you're doing one to four and you're like, call in. And like, and that one, it was a old fashioned phone. And that one line is just blinking. You're like, <laughs> Felicia, thank you. Thank you for being there. <laughs> that was pretty much the only person I was hearing from. And, you know, it really just took off. We were excited to be on FM, but we also, I don't know, whoever did it was really, I think it was really smart uniting everyone, of course, is to choose a common enemy. And the common enemy was 93Q. Right. The bagel, the bagel station, we called it. Um, I can't remember why. I was going to add, that was my next follow-up question. Okay, we can move on from that. I, I can't even remember where I put my keys. So I, I just don't remember why it was called. They may have even called themselves the bagel station, but they hated us because we were actually having an impact on their book. Right. And they were like, what's this non-commercial uh, radio station doing, taking our listeners, costing us money? Yeah. And that was also exciting. So we had, a, we had somebody we were going after and we were uniting in that because people who were working there were not doing it casually. People who were working there when it first went FM had a passion. And that was great because everybody had it. And it was an exciting place to be. Do you remember any specific uh, moments or promotions or events the station did after you were on FM and you had listeners and you were pulling ratings away from 93Q? Well, I will mention, it's a rumor. I have no idea how the law works or the statute of limitations, but one of the things that might have been done to help the station was somebody who worked at Z100 in New York may have brought many of the uh, drops, the bed, music beds, and sound effects from the number one morning show in the country <laughs> and given it to Chris Bungo. I don't know who that was, but I will tell you the station was sounding really, really good. <laughs> I'll have to ask Chris about that or talking to him in yes. an upcoming episode. <laughs> but I do remember that everybody listened to the station and Larry, I don't know if it was Larry Barron who worked it out, but somebody made a deal at that point, they were still trying different things on how to 
make tickets available to students for the SU basketball games. Mm -hmm. And they had tried a number of things. And this year, they were going to make an announcement. There was You were not allowed to line up for basketball tickets. Hmm. And there was going to be an announcement. And then everybody was to go to the Dome and line up and get their uh, place in line or buy tickets. And somebody had worked it out that Larry Barron was going to make the announcement Wow! of when the basketball tickets were going to be available. And this was the era of uh, Pearl Washington. That's about as much as I know about SU basketball. So Larry was going to make this announcement. And Larry was very serious about it. For those of you who know Larry, he, he took this very seriously. I mean, it was a big deal. God rest his soul, yeah. So he wouldn't tell any of us. And I remember I was in visiting somebody in Lawrenson. And of course, everybody, I mean everybody, was listening to the station, waiting for this announcement. Because they promoted it. Everybody knew it was going to come on Z89, but no one knew when. So we had everybody listening at that time. And it was great. So I remember Larry announcing it. And then I remember being in Lawrence and visiting somebody and looking out the window and it was like somebody poured hot water on an anthill. <laughs> and, and you could see people running out of Sadler, Lawrence and coming from all directions. I mean, it was extraordinary. People were running. There was a riot forming. Oh my God. And that announcement came from Larry Barron. And that was pretty damn cool. I got to say, it's unfortunate that we just lost Larry, but it's great that we're getting to hear yeah. so many stories about him on the podcast. So thank you for sharing that one. What an incredible story, too. Yeah. Well, there's also the Larry Barron that the, the moment he would like to forget. Uh, Larry Barron, the consummate radio man, dropped an F-bomb on the air. Oh, he did. Uh, we had a morning show. Uh, my senior year, Larry and I. And Larry, I don't know where it came from, but an F-bomb left his lips. <laughs> and he, I looked at him and he looked at me and he, <laughs> he did not know how to recover. I've never seen him speechless before, but he looked at me, his head was about to explode and he just walked out of the studio <laughs> it was it was a low moment. I think I took complete advantage of the situation. I did not try to brush it under the rug. Uh, I think I highlighted it uh, pretty much for the rest of the show. And then he composed himself and he came back. But that's one of those moments. It's like Walter Cronkite <laughs> letting an F-bomb fly. That was the importance of that. That was the respect that this man had. That is fantastic. Yes. And knowing you, I've known you that long, but knowing you as I do at this point, I can totally see you just going back to it over and over again and belaboring yes. it just to, just to push his buttons, I'm sure. You have to. Oh, it had to be done. Yeah. It was a low point in his career, and, and I certainly couldn't let it go. There are a number of uh, folks listening to this podcast who may or may not have let something like that fly on JPZ. I may or may not be including myself on that. So a relatable story for sure. <laughs> All right. So you graduate in 87, Chris. I was able to graduate in 87. Yes. Tell me about your career uh, arc since then, because you have done a lot of cool things in the industry. Um, thank you. Yeah, I went to Los Angeles probably a week after I graduated destined, I thought, to be in the some aspect of the entertainment industry. And I was exploring all kinds of uh, avenues and realized I was way too much of a coward to be a writer-director, which is what I thought I would initially be. I just didn't think I could wait tables, be poor, and you know push my passion project. 
So I had somebody say to me, you know what, why don't you actually take a second to learn about the industry as opposed to jumping in and trying to be a writer director? And I said, okay, how does, how does one do that? And I learned all about uh, the talent agencies and their well-known, well-regarded trainee programs. I was able to utilize my Syracuse network and other networks and interview all around and ended up in the mailroom at the William Morse Agency. Okay. Where I remember I was sorting mail and I'm like, okay, I've got a four-year degree. I did not think sorting mail was going to be my <laughs> first job. I thought perhaps I've graduated from that. But the guy sorting mail next to me had graduated from Harvard Law School. Huh. So I said, perhaps this is exactly where I should be. <laughs> you know, you sorted mail and did everything that uh, one would think that one would do in the mailroom. Then you get promoted and you become a messenger so they give you a car and about 20 packages in the morning and 20 packages in the evening. And you get a dotted map and you run around, you know, Los Angeles delivering and picking up packages. Wow. And you knew who was going to treat you well. Uh, Richard Simmons had me in for tea. Huh. Oh, yes. How lovely. Uh, and all of the uh, trainees around town, the messengers, all wore suits. So you knew who they were. Mm -hmm. eh, by and large, one out of... 10 of them might become an agent. So people treated you fairly well. Mm -hmm. And then if you saw that map all the way out, because it was a pretty far drive, you had to go to B. Arthur's house. Huh. And B. Arthur from uh, Golden Girls, it was always like you went up, you know, you're in your car and uh, you press the button at her, at her gates. You couldn't see her house. And I was like, hello. And I'm like... Ugh. Normally people are really nice and it was like an annoyance yeah. that I have rung her bell. Her massive dogs were barking. She's like, fine, come in. And, uh, and <laughs> I mean, rest in peace, be Arthur. So you, you know, you got to know a lot of people. You learned a lot by kind of running around at the studios to different people's uh, homes. And then I became an assistant for two and a half years where you are tested a little bit further, and I was pretty sure I was going to get fired. I had one of the premier desks uh, for the co-head of the motion picture department, and I was dealing with a lot of different people. And about four days a week, Tom Hanks's manager would hang up on me huh. during lunch. I was not allowed to take lunch for two and a half years. Literally three to four times a week, Cy uh, Maslow, rest in peace, would yell at me because I said something wrong or I had the wrong, I mean, I was in inevitably going to do something wrong mm. and he hung up on me and I thought for sure it's Tom Hanks's manager. I'm done. <laughs> you know, stick a fork in me. It was like the scene in Princess Bride. He's talking about uh, working for the Dread Pirate Roberts. And he said, go to bed. I will most likely kill you in the morning. <laughs> and that's pretty much the way I felt every single day. But I survived. And I uh, became an agent in the motion picture uh, and television department. Mm -hmm. Started working with all kinds of uh, clients. You know, I went to Asia where no one else had gone yet, but no one respected anybody out of Asia. So I thought, okay, well, that's a good place to go. And, and found this director named John Wu, wow. who was a, a big action director in Asia, but no one had heard of him in the States except Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> <laughs> and then I also was in the UK and... We're trying to sign a comedy 
guys out and uh, a guy named Rowan Atkinson, uh, who plays uh, Mr. Bean. Right, right, right. Uh, Well-known. He was my first uh, client out of the UK. Wow. So I was an agent uh, for a while, met my lovely wife while she was an assistant at uh, William Morris as well. Did that for, I don't know, five years. And then I left that and uh, formed a company with John Woo. We did Broken Arrow and Face Off and Replacement Killers and some really horrible television. And, and Okay, okay. You got my attention with Broken Arrow and Face Off, two great movies. Tell, let's be fair here. <laughs> Tell me about some of the bad TV. One of them was called uh, Blackjack, starring Dolph Lundgren <laughs> for the USA Network. Okay. The problem with that is when you have a director who's really, really hot off a big movie, no one will tell him no. Like, this isn't a good idea. Oh. And so I will just say that Dolph Lundgren had a problem with white. And he wore sunglasses throughout the whole thing because, of course, if he took the sunglasses off, he saw white, he gets woozy. You know, there you go. So the final scene, it's one of the worst final scenes, <laughs> uh, which is why people flock to it now to, to see it. Where do you think, if you have a problem with, with white, where is the worst place to have the finale? The big shootout. I would say uh, midday, Old West. I, I don't know. Well, I won't keep you in suspense. John thought um, a dairy would be the ideal place to have the final shootout. Oh, with seeing all massive, that white. Okay. Massive tanks of milk <laughs> that inevitably were going to be shot up. Oh, jeez. And they were going to be knee deep in whole milk, pasteurized, homogenized, uh, vitamin D enhanced milk. I don't have an eye problem with milk, but the lactose issue is starting to make my stomach turn a little bit here. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, the sunglasses fall off, as you do in the final scene. So Dolph is is woozy. What's going to save him? Because he's got to shoot all these bad guys. Well, fortunately, the kid that he's saving is on his back and tells him where to, you know, which direction to go. Oh, my God. Yeah, I know. I know. It just went from bad to worse to whatever is this on youtube like can we link to this in the show notes or you know what i don't know it's not something i've looked for (laughs) (laughs) but i have had friends watch it just so they can bring it up to me and just torment me this is after rocky four and i must break you and all that right so he he was well known at that point or it was it was he was but i mean one of the reasons he got cast first of all he is a lovely guy but second of all he was supposed to have been really big foreign Mm-hmm. And so that's what they, they were saying. Look, we could really use that slice of money and we have a much better chance of getting this show to go to series if we had the foreign money. Oh, okay. Interesting. So that was one of the appeals of, of going with Dolph. Okay. It's WJPZ at 50. Hey, it's Jag. You're probably listening to this episode of the podcast because you know the person I'm interviewing. But one of the true joys of this project has been learning the stories of everyone in the WJPZ family. When you're done with this podcast, I'd encourage you to check out an episode with someone you don't know. You never know what you might have in common with your other WJPZ relatives. Looking back at half a century of broadcast excellence. This is WJPZ at 50. So what was next for you career-wise, Chris? I briefly got into an internet venture as the uh, internet was crumbling. (laughs) And then... Went to New Line Cinema, where I was a uh, senior VP of production. Mm-hmm. Developed several films there. Worked on uh, what was going to be the next installment of Rush Hour. Got Sean Connery for a, a movie. 
that everybody was really excited to have uh, Sir Sean. And then one day I walked in and the head of New Line, because they had done another uh, heist movie uh, recently with Brett Ratner that took place on a cruise ship that bombed. Hmm. They said, well, we're not making this heist movie. But they already had a deal with Sean. And then I'm like, well, who's going to tell him? Because you don't, you don't want me, you know, and of course, yeah, yeah, they, they, they all looked at me and they're like, well, it's your, you're the sacrificial lamb. Oh, geez. So, uh, yeah, that didn't go down extraordinarily well. And at some point in our relationship, uh, Sir Sean told me I did things ass backwards. So I got a shellacking from Sir Sean, uh, which is a highlight of my career. I'm picturing this in the context of the Will Ferrell celebrity Jeopardy impression. I'm picturing that, that, that's the thing that comes comes to mind for me. You know, I'll take swords for four hundred. Yes. That, that's S words. <laughs> well, he called me once as we're preparing for this movie. He wanted me to director, and I said, I don't know if the director is available. Let me find out. And he says, Well, I've got all these uh, flights in place, and I'm traveling, and and I I don't want to change anything unless the uh, meeting is for sure. And I said, That's absolutely the way I feel. I have absolutely no idea if this guy is available. Please let me find out, but don't change anything. Next morning comes, Sean calls me and says, Okay, I've changed everything. <laughs> you know, where's the meeting? And I'm like, He's not available. <laughs> and I'm like. But we just had a conversation and now he's mad at me. Uh. We just said, don't change anything. And he changed it all. And I'm like, this isn't your first movie. (laughs) So, yeah, I've had uh, moments in my career uh, when I was an agent, even Mel Brooks yelled at me. Really? Yep. That was fun. And uh, actually, it kind of was fun. (laughs) I'd imagine it would be with Mel Brooks. I did. Well, I made my assistant like hang up what she was doing. And I said, you got to pick up the phone. He's like ripping me a new one. But it's Mel Brooks. I would imagine it was at least funny when he was ripping you a new one. It got to that. Initially, he was really pissed. And then it got to where he was just riffing. And then he finally goes, and Gotsick? What kind of name is Gotsick anyway? (laughs) So, you know, he just, he just, you know. Uh, started on that. Uh, anyway, and then I bought, when I was a new line, I bought this thing that probably was never going to get made, but it was, I was really excited to buy it. Um, I bought uh, Shazam. It was a really unique uh, situation because new line didn't own any of the, uh, DC comic titles. They were all owned by Warner brothers. And even Mm -hmm. though same company, you know, new line was the bastard stepchild, so to speak. So this was really unusual that new line was going to get to own a DC title. They had Superman. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Was it the 50s? There was a big lawsuit between Shazam and Superman because they were basically the same. (laughs) And even though Shazam had a lot more powers linked to the name, basically it was all about, you know, strength and, you know, flying and all that stuff. So I bought it and I developed it and it never got made because Superman prevented it from ever getting made. And then Warner Brothers really screwed up Superman colossally. Mm -hmm. And the guy who was the head of New Line went to Warner Brothers and decided, you know what, we're going to make a, quote, big, unquote, you know, like a big version of a superhero character. And that was Shazam. So that was took 15 years later for it to finally, uh, oh, there's some, you know, a lot of other kind of other stuff along the way. And uh, I did some stuff with the military. So I've been out on submarines and planes and Kuwait and Bahrain and all kinds of places doing a lot of research on on stories. And that's been probably one of the most interesting things, uh, you know, being a producer. And uh, then I started writing. I haven't sold any of the scripts yet, but I've uh, gotten some really, really good responses. And that's been really, really nice to finally be able to flex those those muscles. 
And then uh, I was kind of looking for something else to do. And a friend of mine at the U.S. Marshal Service said, you should really learn about the marshals. Come learn. Mm -hmm. And I was pretty sure that anything that's ever needed to be said about law enforcement has been said by Dick Wolf. Uh, <laughs> so there was no room. But he said, yeah, yeah, whatever. That might be the case, but come anyway. And I started going out on arrests or hits as you know they sometimes call them with them with the marshal service wow getting guys wanted for homicides and for some other pretty heinous crimes mm -hmm. and that morphed into the idea of doing a podcast which i am just about to put out called chasing evil um, which is about victims and bringing bad guys to justice they're just some really interesting, tragic stories, but I think we present them in a kind of interesting way. Well, in full disclosure, I helped edit uh, one of the episodes and it was about a girl that was uh, kidnapped or is that the right way to phrase it? She was a runaway. And then they made it a little bit difficult for her to leave. But what made it really interesting, and, and this is what happens with a lot of runaways, is that things are so bad at home that whatever they're facing out in the world, whatever circumstance they get, no matter how horrible it is, uh, and they were preparing to traffic her, it's still better than being at home. Right. Uh, and I will tell you that that episode of the podcast is uh, a, a harrowing story from having heard it already. And the podcast is really going to take some interesting, uh, take you behind the scenes and some really, really fascinating stuff. If you're into true crime podcasts, uh, I don't just say this because you and I collaborated a little bit on this, but it's a yeah. fantastic podcast, Chasing Evil. So we'll link to that in the show notes. Thank you very much, sir. And even if you're not into true crime podcasts. If you're into throwing a bone to fellow JPZ alumni, take a listen yeah. to the Chasing Evil podcast. If you're into meditation, this will be the podcast for you. <laughs> um, when you and I met in Nashville, Chris, you told me about your experience working on a show that most of us listening know, which is Veep with Julie Louis-Dreyfus. Yes, um, that, was, that was a wild experience. But I was lucky enough to meet Armando Iannucci, who had created Thick of It, which was a political satire that had gained a lot of uh, critical acclaim in the UK, and he wanted to do another political satire. And I kind of was put together by his manager in the UK, who also represented Rowan Atkinson. And we set about uh, setting up a political satire. And we went to HBO, who is well aware of uh, the thick of it, and set up a political satire that took place in the State Department. Mm -hmm. And they were like, great, okay, State Department. That'll be interesting. Let us kind of know what it's about. And then about two weeks later, he called me and goes, it's not State Department. It's the White House. Ah. It's the vice president and the vice president's a woman. And it was one of those very, very few eureka moments you have mm -hmm. to, to say, you know, that you say to yourself, that is ridiculously brilliant. <laughs> uh, because as everyone knows, the VP has almost no power if the president dies, the VP steps in. If there's a tie uh, in the Senate, they break the tie. Other than that, all the power that the vice president have is negotiated with the president's office. Mm -hmm. So that, of course, is uh, ripe for comedy. So it really came out well. And Julia, we had a long list of actresses. I mean, from everybody you can imagine. And Julia was the first meeting, hmm. the very first meeting. And... That went on for about two and a half hours. It was Amanda, Julia, and I. And afterward, I was like, wow, that she is 
extraordinarily impressive, knows your work, really understands the humor. Um, we got a lot of meetings out of us. And he goes, so no, we don't. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He goes, I'm done. Normally the casting process can take, you know, several weeks, a month, two months. This took about three hours. Wow. And he was, uh, he was, yeah, absolutely very firmly. I am done. She's my girl. And as they say, the rest is history. And it was, you know, very critically acclaimed, got a couple of awards. Uh, you know, I'm not the only JPZ alum to have won Emmys. I think there are several What what a talented group. Yes. I was on it for, um, well, including the pilot, probably six, seven years. Wow. Okay. And for the first five seasons. And it was fantastic. I once took a meeting that I had. I went to the vice president's house. I went to Biden's house. Biden had this thing called Biden's Beach Bash. Okay. And it was held at the vice president's house, uh, which is located at the Naval Observatory. Mm-hmm. They had, you know, a band and food and bounties and some sand. And it was a, it was a huge deal. It was, it was great. So someone said to me, do you, oh, do you want to go meet uh, the VP? I said, uh, sure. Syracuse guy, right? Yeah, why not? Right. Yeah, why not? Syracuse guy. So you fill out a card and then you stand in this little bit of, little bit of a line and you're, you know, you're at the house. So it's not a real long line. And someone takes the card looks at the card, whispers in, his, you know, whispers in his ear a little bit and kind of makes the introduction as to who you are. And he kind of lights up and he says, Chris, I am so glad you're here. And I'm like, God damn it. I think he means it. <laughs> <laughs> he was so good at greeting me as well as uh, Dr. Biden that I'm like, he's been waiting all day just to meet me. <laughs> that was great. So I took that back to the writers. And I said, look, I got to tell you about this experience I had. And they wrote it into a wonderful scene where I don't know if you remember, I can't even remember what season it was in, where she is greeting people at a party. There's a line and Gary is standing behind her and whispering into her ear who each person is as they walk up. And it's a great scene. And it happened because I told them about my experience at the Biden Beach Bash. And it was great. They were able to do that. They would see things. They would, you know, make changes to the script on the fly. So it was um, really energetic and creative experience. It's a great story. Chris, as we start to wrap up here, are there lessons that you can think of that you learned working at JPZ that have served you well throughout this uh, wild and crazy career you've walked us through in this last half hour? It's obviously no secret that I can chat for (laughs) an extraordinarily long period of time. But a friend of mine told me, who was in the army, told me about three tenants that they live by. And I said, you know, that's not dissimilar to being on the air. And that was be brief, be brilliant and be gone. Yeah. And you got 10 seconds. That's exactly what you're trying to accomplish in those seconds. And that is a lesson that I did take away because there was so much of, you know, being an agent and a producer, but in particular is so much phone conversation. There's so much relationship building. And by and large, unlike this podcast, people don't really want to hear what I have to say. (laughs) (laughs) Part of establishing a rapport as an agent is listening to what they have to say. And therefore, what I say has to be brief, has to be brilliant, and then I'm going to get out of their hair. Mm -hmm. And so I have thought about that a lot. And those are the lessons that you do learn when you're just about to hit that button, you know how much time you have. You want to hit that post. You want to knock that post out of the park. 
And I loved trying to hit the post. I worked with a guy in Vermont who would always, when he would just crush one, he'd be like, somebody call an ambulance. I just hit a post. <laughs> call me the postmaster general. Yeah, all that kind of stuff for sure. Yeah. Yeah. If I knew it, every time I hit a post, I would have just done a mic drop. Yeah. yeah. And that's how it's done. Uh, but that is actually a lesson that uh, I have thought about and I take from radio. And that and the friends. That's my last question for you. Some of the people that you're in contact with uh, from JPZ to this day. Yeah. I don't know what it says about me, but almost all my friends from Syracuse are from JPZ. I didn't join a fraternity. Ditto. There were a lot of people who did not have a face for radio that worked at JPZ. And I had two lovely relationships with ladies uh, that I met at JPZ. And I also, you know, from Chris Bungo, Rocco, Mary, Julie, uh, Happy Dave, you, Dave, Peterman, Steve, Steve Donovan, Phil LaCasse, it, the, the, the list is endless. But these are the people I gravitated toward. And these are the people that I value enough to have relationships with today. And, you know, Syracuse seems so long ago. But, you know, it's, people say, well, what was the best thing about your school? Because I went to a, a very good school in New York City. And it's like any place. It's the friends I took away. It's the lifelong friends that I made. And I made a lot of lifelong friends at, at Z89. Chris Godsick, class of 87, thank you so much for your time today. It's been fun chatting with you. Thanks very much, Jack. I'll see you in March, perhaps. Look forward to it. The WJPZ at 50 podcast is created entirely by the staff and alumni of the world's greatest media classroom. It's hosted by John Jag Gay, class of 2002. Editing help from James Bames Grundy III, class of 2020. Imaging by Maureen Cooper, class of 1999. And Ed Lacombe, class of 1985. Podcast artwork by Marty Dundix, class of 2001. Follow WJPZ at 50 on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you're listening right now.